strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you here from the Calm Radio Studios on Aranda Country in Central Australia here in Bundwala Springs on 18 FM uh, 100.5. We're also broadcasting to the rest of the country through Vast Channel 911 and of course as well coming to you online via our website at karma.com.au. It's a big, happy Monday morning. It's, of course, uh, the start of the working week. It's the 9th of September 2019. Uh, my name's Carl Dowling. Thank you for tuning in this morning. You'll have my company up until 12 o'clock today. We're coming up on the show. One of the most uh, contentious topics is the proposed National Aboriginal Art Gallery here in Alice Springs and the similar gallery that's being built in Adelaide. Lauren Moss, the Northern Territory Minister for Tourism, Culture and Sport, recently came into Karma uh, for a chat about the progress on the gallery here in Alice Springs and to speak a bit about uh, how that's going to be working with its uh, counterpart in South Australia. Also, late last week, traditional owners, uh, First Nations peoples and other groups travelled thousands of kilometres to Sydney, sharing their collective concerns about fracking. And so we're going to hear from a traditional owner who travelled from the community of Elliot to that, uh, what's called the Power of Country tour. Meanwhile, uh, research from Charles Darwin University has found water in some Aboriginal communities is not safe. We're going to be hearing from that report from the wire soon. Also, uh, Sunday marked the start of Fostering Kinship Carers Week, which is a time to celebrate and acknowledge the work done by foster and kinship carers. We're also going to hear the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Before all of that, though, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back. Hey Mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into our first story of the show. Claims that the proposed National Indigenous Art Gallery to be built in Bantuala Springs will have to compete with South Australia's Aboriginal Art and Cultures Gallery have been rejected as kind of offensive by the Northern Territory Culture Minister Lauren Moss. Uh, Michael Lynch, a former member of the Northern Territory Government's reference group, raised his concerns in an interview with the art newspaper, claiming he believed that the two museums would need to compete for collections, audiences and funding. Northern Territory's Minister for Tourism, Sport and Culture, Lauren Moss, recently spoke with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. 
The conversation obviously is around is there room for two national galleries and <laughs> um, I, I, I'd imagine you know you're well aware that the SA government has the backing of the federal government, a, a much larger contribution of money coming from them. The uh, territory, while you were first cab off the rank, obviously the delays have uh, really created some issues and, and sadly many of those delays do go back to that initial consultation with local Aboriginal custodians and people. I mean, in, in hindsight, could it have been done better? Oh, look, I think in hindsight, could the, the very initial consultation as a whole with the whole community have been done better? Absolutely. And I think we we owned that very early on and, um, and we reset that process and we went through a considerable amount of work in terms of consultation with the Aboriginal community in Central Australia specifically. At the time of that report, um, we'd spoken to about 140 individuals. We'd spoken to a number of different organisations organisations. Again, it's been quite well publicised, I think, that actually there's a diversity of voices in the Aboriginal community as well. And from the the perspective of, uh, of government and myself as the Minister for Tourism, Sport and Culture, it's important that I listen to but all of those voices and the different opinions that have been expressed um, to us through the various mechanisms that uh, that we've undertaken. But I think that consultation process has been robust. I know that there were initial um, criticisms of that process very early on, and, and we wore that, and we we want to move forward. And I think that we've done that in a in a respectful way. I think we've done that in the way that the community wanted us to and expected us to. But I did want to go back to that initial comment because I was actually thinking about this earlier. Um, I also read that comment that people are questioning whether there's uh, room in this country for two new um, Aboriginal art galleries. My thinking was, would we be having this conversation if they weren't Aboriginal art galleries, if they were just art galleries? We absolutely wouldn't be. Um, I, I think it's it's kind of offensive for people to be going out there to suggest that there isn't room in this vast country for two institutions that celebrate Aboriginal art and culture. I think that more jurisdictions should be putting money into celebrating Aboriginal art and culture and telling the stories that exist across this country. Because as we know, I mean, here in the Territory, we've got hundreds of languages. The stories that exist down here in the desert are very different to the people, the stories that exist um, where I live, up in saltwater country, up in the top end. So I have read the comments from, you know, in some cases, some quite notable people across this country asking that very question. And I, I pose that back to them and I, I say, I absolutely reject that. What we should be doing is all getting behind uh, pushing for more investment in showcasing art and culture. A former high-profile member of your committee um, has obviously um, weighed in and there has been that discussion around, again, getting back to the consultation with the local Aboriginal people for the location Mm. of the gallery. I mean, you know, there were comments made that uh, the Chief Minister had, in in a sense, intervened and pushed for it to be in in the CBD. Uh, All these discussions are ongoing and and, um, they continue, in a sense, to frustrate the wider community about, well, what is happening? How is it going? Yes, we recently released the business case for the Aboriginal Art Gallery. That's been a solid piece of work that's been done over quite a long period of time Um, and really it uh, it underpins everything we've been saying about what the Art Gallery would do for Central Australia. Um, The gaps that it fills nationally in terms of that complete absence of this kind of institution nationally. So we're talking ultimately up to about $64 million 
into the economy. And, you know, by 2025, an additional 53,000 visitors to Alice Springs to come here and actually experience Aboriginal art and culture. And, and that's really significant in terms of showcasing Aboriginal art and culture and putting that in a place it should be in this country um, and also in terms of local jobs and um, you know we want to make sure those jobs and the majority of those jobs are taken by local Aboriginal people so the opportunities are huge um, I think that's been really positive um, obviously there's ongoing conversations with council uh, here in Alice Springs that everybody's quite familiar with but the, you know the South Australian Premier was here for Desert Mob as well and we had albeit brief but uh, but very good conversation about our two projects and how we see them as um, being complementary and working together. And, uh, you know, I feel still really positive about this and I think it has to happen in the heart of Australia and I think we have significant amount of support for that. Um, there continues to be meetings with uh, other institutions around the country. We have an incredible national steering committee with a number of just amazing territory and national minds on it who are really focused on progressing other aspects of the project. Desart have almost finalised a workforce development plan for the region, which isn't just about the art gallery, but about how we um, can really make sure we're upskilling a, an arts and cultural workforce across the region for all of the investments that are being made. Um, so progress is going it has actually been going incredibly well. And for, for a project of this size and complexity, there does have to be a lot of planning that goes into it. And I think that is reasonably well understood and, and, um, and agreed to. I think what has happened is obviously one aspect of the, the project, which is the site, has become the dominant uh, point of interest. And for us, that's not the only thing we're looking at. That's not the only part of this puzzle. For us, what's important is the story we're telling and the jobs that this creates and the economic opportunity that this creates um, and how this showcases um, culture and how that's really important in truth-telling and, you know, a lot of the things that... the broader themes that we talk about across this country. So I guess we get to see the bigger picture, but often it gets narrowed down to this one aspect of the project. And that, that is what, what it is. There's a lot of public interest in it. Um, and again, there's a lot of diverse views. There's also a lot of support for having it in the centre of town where, you know, it's not on the outskirts of town. It's it's a place of pride. It's a place of showcasing what Alice Springs is about. And an Arendelle culture, an Aboriginal culture, is a huge part of what Alice Springs in this uh, region is about. So we'll continue to have that discussion, but I think it's important for everybody to know that there's a whole range of elements of this project that go on often behind the scenes that don't get talk, talked about that should. Overall, though, you're mm. still confident uh, in the journey. The uh, Gunnar Labor government is still on track to deliver? Look, um, I know that certainly I speak for uh, myself and the, the member for Breitling down here that... Uh, you know, we, we continue to work on this project and to work through some of those complexities that you talk about and that government is committed to making sure this project happens in the heart of Australia. We truly believe in it. There's highs and lows on a journey like this, but we haven't given up yet and uh, and that should tell everybody something. Um, we really believe in this. Um, we're very, very personally invested in it because we think it's the right thing to do from a cultural perspective, from a social perspective, um, but also from an economic perspective. And that's what the business case tells us as well. That was uh, the Northern Territory Minister for Tourism, Sport and Culture, Lauren Moss, who was speaking with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. 
We're going to be heading to a break now and then we'll be right back with our next story. Well, traditional owners uh, travelled thousands of kilometres recently to Sydney to share their concerns about the impacts of fracking. The Power of Country tour began on uh, last Thursday night at the Sydney Town Hall with traditional owners, uh, First Nations peoples and other fellow supporters all coming together. Uh, Late last week, I spoke with uh, one of the traditional owners who travelled all the way from the Northern Territory community of Elliot to Sydney. My name is Stuart Nugget. Bush name is Kirangundi. I'm from Chingali, Mudbara, tribe in Elliot. I'm a musician, also a activist standing against fracking. Stuart, you and a you know a lot of other Aboriginal Torshan people, you know, we've seen traditional owners as well travelling to Sydney recently. Can you just tell us what what's brought you to Sydney? It's about standing against fracking, standing against the poison that's affecting our country, and it's standing against companies, money companies, uh, Oregon. And it's coming together and meeting people that are supporting us in this, you could say, uh, our fight against this to our country. And to be here with families and friends. And Yeah, I understand it's called the, the Power of Country Tour. And, and like you said then, it's, it's sort of that collective of voices, isn't it? Because it's, and the thing is, it's not just um, Aboriginal mob as, as well, isn't it? There's other groups sort of, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we got uh, we got seed and... Um, Lock the gate, and more of people here in Sydney that are supporting us to stand against uh, what the money companies are trying to do. It's not only our land, it's our home. To be coming away from home in a community and to meet these people and to just influence us and know, know that we're not alone in this fight. Can you talk to us a little bit about why this is something that you're opposed to and, and explain a bit about your situation? Because I understand, you know, this sort of the whole fracking situation would, would obviously hit home close to you, yeah? Beetle Basin is the one thing the money companies are trying to with the oil and gas. And it's, it's, it's not further, it's just closer to home. And Elliot is like uh, 20 or 15 k's away from Beetle Basin. And it's affecting our, our home our way of life and our culture and our land and the money companies are coming in there and it's like yeah just trying to drill there and take what they what they need in this whole process of of, you know the move towards fracking and things like that uh you know we've seen you know some concerning stuff that were happening not not with fracking but you know with um other sort of mining in queensland and stuff with the the one gun and jangalingu mob but for for you in, in the whole fracking space do you think traditional owners that their, their voices are being heard in this whole process, and yeah, that's 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 why we're here. Uh, that's why we um, our voices need to be heard. These shareholders and you know, people need to open their eyes. Like um, they're saying, you know, gas is good, this is good, but it's destroying our home. Uh, it's a it's a different world, big city, and then you've got a small community behind the bush, and it's like. Oh, we can do that. We can drill this and and do that and get our voices heard and say, no, we don't want this. We don't want you to poison our land. This is our home. And it's mainly our voices need to be heard. And as a TO, um, I'm standing up. And just finally then for you, Stuart, what, what, what do you hope 
comes from this process, this collective of, of traditional owners, you know, Aboriginal mob come from across the country and all these other groups, like you're saying, and seed in that. What do you hope comes from this? I'm hoping that people would realise, and um, especially families too at home, and it's not only, you know, like it takes one person to start a movement, and this is a movement, and hopefully that all the countrymen from Northern Territory, from top end to the center, standing up for country, and, and yeah, just hopefully this will uh, encourage and hopefully come together, unite, come together and, and stop what the government trying to do in their country, in LA. and for young people to understand. That was uh, Stuart Nagadea, jingli a uh, traditional owner from uh, Elliot. Uh, we're going to go to a break now, though, and then we'll be right back with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices this Monday morning, and now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio, Karma's uh, Paul Wiles. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Kyle, and good morning, listeners. Well, I understand you've got a story in uh, regards to the Stolen Generations or teaching about the Stolen Generations, Paul. Yeah, well, this uh, came uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald and uh, a a volunteer ethics teacher has been stood down from a Sydney primary school for telling students that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Stolen Generations were taken from their families because of poor parenting. Uh, The incident has raised questions about whether volunteers should be allowed to teach ethics and religion in public schools. The uh, special education in ethics discussion uh, involved year six students at a uh, public school in Sydney. Uh, It Uh, The discussion began as one about homelessness, but became heated when one student mentioned uh, the long-term trauma of the stolen generations. The elderly teacher told the students that what they had been told about the stolen generations was a beat-up, and that the real reason children were taken from their families was bad, lazy parenting, according to uh, the parents of two of the students who attended. Uh, The facts are the Stolen Generations uh, um, were taken away from their families and communities as children because of government policies. Um, Now, uh, over the years, and I believe um, this has brought a comment from an old friend um, in the mainstream media, and uh, going back many, many years probably 15 years ago. I think we even had a an on-air uh, discussion with Andrew Bolt about the Stolen Generations, but he's not going to let it go. No, yeah, he has he has commented on the story as well and, and just general gist in terms of his article that he's written is, is talking about how it's sort of, I guess, uh, you know, the teacher's been stood down when a myth is being challenged and things like that and how, how I guess people are sort of stifling debate in his sort of opinion where they're not allowing uh, discussions to happen and, and suspending him uh, this sort of situation but uh, yeah a very interesting yeah. situation. So, uh, some of the uh, comments that this um, gentleman made um, um, the students reported was he said we should only listen to him because he was 75 and had lived in Townsville for 10 years. That was his uh, reason for making the comment. Right. Um, for whatever 
reason. <laughs> that was the basis of his discussion. Okay. Uh, he was old. He'd lived in Townsville for 10 years, and uh, um, the country had been uh, virtually told a, a furphy. As uh, Andrew Bolt um, has pursued for many, many years. Yeah. Mm. Well, we've also got Damien joining us in the studio this morning. Good morning, Damien. Good morning, Carl. What story did you have for us this morning? Um, well, have the Fred Hollows Foundation has launched a $40 million plan to stop Indigenous Australians going blind at the at three times the rate of Australians. Uh, this one's coming from the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and the foundation will also train Aboriginal controlled health services to deliver eye care to their communities to counter um, the that Australians only Indigenous um Ophthalmologist Dr. Christopher Rallabaker says can be a roadblock to improving Indigenous health. Um, and um, oh, I don't know how to pronounce uh, this name, but um, Tatapatia, Mr. Tatapata says that the late uh, Mr. Hollow's meeting with the men from the Wadi Creek and his later involvement with the new Aboriginal Medical Services in Redfern had struck a nerve. Um, and Fred believed that it was a social uh, justice movement around self-determination and that Aboriginal health should be delivered by communities for communities. Um, and, yeah, just, uh, you know, another take on um, unnecessary blindness in in a uh, first world country, mm. it's an ongoing story. And uh, Chris Rala Baker, um, we still, I think um, Chris was here some time ago and uh, sat down and had a, a rather long conversation. We still haven't played that yet. So uh, he, uh, the first uh, Aboriginal um, um, ophthalmologist in the country, and uh, quite an interesting journey. And Chris um, has actually um, done quite a bit of work in Central Australia and in other remote communities. So he obviously has a, um, a pretty good understanding of the situation. Yeah. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Damien, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to head to a song now, and then we'll be right back with our next interview. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards, and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. Well, now is uh, Foster and Kinship Carers Week, and the Foster and Kinship Carers Association are using this time to highlight the great work and effort being made by those people who have chosen uh, this field as their career path. Carmen's Damien Williams caught up with uh, Anne Owen, the CEO of Foster and Kinship Carers Association, and asked about the role carers play in the lives of those young people in care. Well, it's very important. It's just certain situations where young people have to come into care and um, and it's appropriate to have great fostering kinship carers who are happy to open up their hearts and their homes to take these children in. Carers come from all backgrounds. Um, they can be single, they can be married, they can be same-sex couples, they can have children of their own or um, be grandparents or aunties and uncles um, and they do come from culturally diverse backgrounds. So we've got a range of carers from all different nationalities who, um, who do just that, they care. 
like you said, that, that children come from all different backgrounds and, and nationalities. And how important is it to try and, if it is available, where it is available, to have those children go with families of the same background? Oh, look, um, that is very important. And um, and sometimes it's not possible, but wherever possible, um, we make every effort to um, put children with families with the same backgrounds. Like, for example, the Aboriginal Placement Principle does state very clearly that children tend to do better when they're placed in family in aboriginal families and and sometimes even they are able to stay on country and for those uh, you know children that that aren't able to um, stay with a family from the same background what kind of support is in place for those people to be able to provide that connection to culture or connection to their backgrounds We do a lot of work with agencies who provide cultural awareness um, classes and especially around um, languages and making sure that the young people are have an opportunity not to lose their language in this part. You know, sometimes these, these young people are able to go home and it's really nice that, that the language is still key to their existence and they, they are able to communicate very clearly back. We don't want kids to feel displaced, you know, and sometimes that has happened in the past and we're working really hard to try and keep those connections open. For the uh, children, how long do they stay with families? Hmm. We, we do have some um, situations where children come into care um, and can't go home until they're, they're an adult. However, we've got a lot of situations where care is only needed for a short time. So there is an emergency carers or um, giving foster carers relief. So there's some respite care. Um, sometimes kids come into care for three months, you know, or just till the family gets whatever it is um, out of the road. Sometimes it's a health issue that, that they can't deal with at home and they just need somebody to help them out. So that's kind of how long is a piece of string. It just depends on the individual case for each individual child. For those people, you know, wanting to to become carers, how how do they do that? Well, they can contact our office. We've got an office in Alice Springs um, uh, in Todmore. Just simply ring the, the phone number, 1300 zero three zero nine two eight and um, we're able to uh, connect you up come and have a talk to our our team about um, what can be done you know sort of you can start off small as a a respite care or an emergency care and just take a young person just while a crisis is settled down or it might be a longer term um, uh, thing that you're looking for and so you sort of um, uh, mentor the parents or, or you know the people who who want to become foster carers or kinship carers. Yeah, our, our role is to work with the foster carer. So we do all sorts of things like provide training, we provide networking meetings, um, 
apprentice get together and have a coffee and sometimes um, if there's a challenge, you know, sort of we'll offer some advice or, or put them on the right pathway to um, helping them through it uh, to find a solution. And just with the highlighting of um, foster carers and, and kinship carers, they do an amazing job, don't they? You know, taking in children and, and looking after them. They absolutely do. But these carers are, are often, they have busy lives, you know. They have often, many of them have their own, their own biological children with them and then uh, they feel there's room for more. So they're happy to um, take on other, other kids as well. Someone who, who just needs an extra bit of loving in their life or, you know, things have been a little bit tough for, they're, they're there to help them through those crises. And what would you say to those uh, foster and kinship carers that are already out there? I think um, they're doing an awesome job. We need far more foster and kinship carers, but we need to recognise the work, the great work in the community that our foster and kinship carers are doing. And Owen, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. Ah, oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Damien. That was the CEO of uh, Foster and Kinship Carers Association, Anne Owen, speaking with uh, Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to be going to our next story very soon, right after this. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. New research from Charles Darwin University shows that water in some Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory isn't safe to drink. The wise Eduardo Jordan files this report. The research found that water in remote communities can produce some aggressive bacteria. The results bring concerns about water safety in Northern Australia. Professor in Environmental Microbiology from Charles Darwin University, Karen Gibbs, is conducting the research. We sampled water and biofilm from three remote Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory. And in each community, the water body or, or groundwater aquifer had different ages and depths. One had low levels of iron, one had average levels, the medium levels of iron, and a third had high levels. All three um, had previously reported the bacteria called Burkholderia pseudomale, which is also known as miliadosis. So there had been clinical reports of infections for all three communities. She also says miliadosis reproduces in wet and humid areas. Miliadosis is, I guess it's an emerging, it's an infectious disease that affects both humans and animals. And it's caused by the bacteria Burkholderia pseudomale. Now, this with shortened as BPS and it naturally occurs in tropical soils and water and it's widespread, it's endemic in northern Australia and parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, so it is naturally occurring. It spreads to human and animals through um, direct contact with contaminated sources. But people who are most at risk are those who suffer from diabetes, chronic lung or renal disease or hazardous alcohol use. It can be asymptomatic um, just a detection of antibodies to mild skin infections through to what's referred to as a fatal disseminated or spread disease, which is associated with septic shock. Miliuidosis, known as BPS, also reproduces due to high amounts of iron in the water. The iron, according to Professor Gibbs, comes from the water pipes. Iron 
iron itself isn't poisonous. People don't like it because it turns everything pink. There's some taste, but, but really from our perspective, it contributes to buildup of biofilms inside the pipes. That reduces the water flow and it corrodes the pipes and it's iron cycling bacteria that do that. That all comes together to reduce the efficiency of chlorination and that means that pathogens, opportunistic pathogens like BPS can hide in those biofilms and you know it just becomes a bigger and bigger issue. BPS like any bacteria, it's out there to survive and it can actually take up a form of iron and there was in our study a, a, an association that was between the bacteria and the total iron levels in the bore water so that there is a relationship. The research team also found out BPS is able to survive water treatment with chlorine. We cultured BPS from the bores with elevated iron. And we also were able to culture it from multi-species biofilm. And that biofilm also contained an iron oxidizing bacteria, something that uh, called a nitrospira that uses nitrogen. But also, interestingly, there was also an amoeba in there. And that led us down a couple of paths, which we're only just starting on now, is that we know that other opportunistic pathogens can actually live inside these amoebae. And in some lab experiments, BPS could as well. So what this is really interesting and important because if it's a feature of the BPS's survival strategy that it can hide in amoebae in this remote community. Professor Gibbs says the research will help more communities in Northern Australia. We really want to make a difference. We want to improve drinking water management and services in, in towns and remote communities across Northern Australia. We are really committed to making sure our research can result in multiple barriers, targeted management. We also feel that the work that we propose will allow the production of risk maps. That was uh, Professor Karen Gibb, researcher in environmental micro bi microbiology from uh, Charles Darwin University, ending that report from the wise Eduardo Jordan. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you uh, tune in the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12 for the next episode of Strong Voices. Strong Voices. Richard Richard.